0: Good morning. In today's headlines, Hurricane Idalia is now an extremely dangerous Category 4 hurricane and is nearing landfall in Florida this morning. Officials are sounding the alarm on possible catastrophic and life-threatening impacts. And the National Archives is holding over 5,000 documents connected to then-Vice President Joe Biden and his fictitious email accounts. We'll speak with the general counsel of the organization that is now suing to have the documents released. A House panel demanding answers from the Biden administration about a mysterious meeting before Trump's indictment between a member of special counsel Jack Smith's team and a White House staffer. States like Illinois and California are recruiting non-citizens for their police forces. Some are indebted for safe passage here, and a former immigration judge says smuggling cartels would enjoy having these indebted recruits on patrol. We spoke to him. A stolen baby, foreign adoption, and a heartbroken mom. What happens after more than 40 years of uncertainty? Good morning, welcome to NTD, I'm Kevin Hogan. Today is Wednesday, August 30th, and our top news is the dangerous storm barreling towards Florida. Idalia has now strengthened into a Category 4 hurricane. It is expected to hit around 8 a.m. eastern time. At last update, it was located around 50 miles west of Cedar Key, Florida in the Gulf of Mexico. It's currently packing maximum sustained winds of 130 miles per hour, but could continue to strengthen before reaching the coast of Florida in a few hours. The National Hurricane Center is predicting catastrophic and life-threatening impacts as Idalia moves ashore. It says the storm's landfall strength and storm surge could reach once-in-a-lifetime levels along Florida's Big Bend region, which could be hit with a 12- to 16-foot surge. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis gave the latest at a presser this morning.
1: The National Hurricane Center expects storm surge to reach up to 16 feet in some areas of the Big Bend region. We currently have 54,000 households that are out of power throughout the state of Florida, but there have been over 100,000 households that have already been restored through hard work uh, all through the night and those restoration efforts are ongoing any place it's safe to do. People are there working to get that done. Uh, as soon as it's safe to do so, when the winds uh, die down to a sufficient level, search and rescue efforts will
0: begin. Continuing with Hurricane Dahlia, officials are urging people to heed evacuation orders as Florida braces for fierce winds and surging seawater. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on warnings and preparations ahead of the storm.
2: Idalia's fury steadily intensified on Tuesday, drawing energy from the warm, open waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Millions of people in the storm's path have tied down boats, boarded up windows, sandbagged their properties and headed for higher ground. Mandatory evacuation orders had been issued in at least 28 of Florida's 67 counties as of Tuesday night. Florida Emergency Management Chief Kevin Guthrie says the predicted storm surge is three feet higher than was forecast for the deadly Hurricane Ian.
1: We are going to experience um, historical flood surge up into the Big Bend area.
2: Um, This is nothing to be messing around with. Ian killed 149 people in Florida, most from drowning in the high storm surge. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is reminding people that getting out of harm's way doesn't mean traveling hundreds of miles, saying simply getting to higher ground at a friend's house or shelter will do. Now, if you do
1: choose to stay
2: uh, in one of
1: the evacuation zones, first responders will not be able to get you until after the storm has passed. That's right. They're not going to be able to get there till after the storm has passed. So please make decisions that are best for you and for your family.
2: This coastal town resident says she's heeding her law enforcement officer son's pressure to evacuate.
0: They um, have ordered a lot of body bags. They're expecting some fatalities, so I don't want to be one of them.
2: <laughs> Emergency director John McDonald is calling on people to get far out of the surge zone. He says anything on the east side of Highway US 19 will do.
1: It's real. It's happening. Um, you know, we can deny it. We can do that. You know, We always tell everybody to uh, run run from the surge and hide
2: from the wind. The head of FEMA says the forecasted storm surge is uniquely dangerous for Florida's west coast due to its underwater geography.
3: Very few people can survive being in the path of major storm surge and this storm will be deadly if we don't get out of harm's way and take it seriously.
2: The outer bands of Hurricane Idalia have already wreaked havoc in Fort Myers Beach not even a year after Hurricane Ian destroyed large swaths of the city. This Cedar Key Island resident will be riding out the storm holed up in a stone church.
4: We've got some elderly and infirm people here on the island that have just refused
0: to leave. And, uh, and I just felt a responsibility as their neighbor and as a person that loves this island uh, to try to stay behind and to see what I can do to help.
2: He says they have rescue boats set up for people to leave once the storm passes. The island residents shared, when you live on the Gulf, you get a feel for the natural rhythm of things.
3: Right now, you can feel the pressure dropping in your belly, and it feels like the hand of death.
2: Most of Florida's 21 million residents, and many in Georgia and South Carolina, are under hurricane warnings and other storm-related advisories. Emergency declarations have been issued in all three states. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
0: Stay safe, everyone, and we will keep you updated as this develops. From natural disasters to national archives, the agency may have over 5,000 documents connecting then-Vice President Joe Biden to fake email accounts. That's according to a lawsuit filed by a conservative legal foundation. Entity's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more details.
5: The Southeastern Legal Foundation, a nonprofit national legal organization, revealing that the National Archives identified nearly 5,400 documents connected to pseudonym email accounts used by then Vice President Joe Biden. This comes in response to the foundation's Freedom of Information Act request on June 9, 2022. The Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, permits American citizens to seek transparency from the federal government on matters of national concern. The foundation had requested all emails used by then Vice President Joe Biden under three pseudonyms, Robert Ware, J.R.B. Ware, and Robert L. Peters. They're investigating whether or not President Biden was involved with his son's foreign business dealings. The House Oversight Committee requested the same emails earlier this month in connection with its own investigation into President Biden. In a timeline of the investigation, the committee reports records obtained through the committee's subpoenas to date reveal that the Bidens and their associates have received over $20 million in payments from foreign entities. Coma responded to the number of documents held by the archives.
2: Every week, we find more information, more pseudonyms, more communication between joe biden and his family more shell companies more wire transfers so this is getting worse by the day according to
5: the foundation's press release it first requested the emails in 2021 after members of the senate judiciary committee identified the three email accounts in a letter to the archives but the archives said it was too soon to release them then the foundation made a second request in june 2022 The Archives responded in a June 24, 2022 letter. We have performed a search of our collection for vice presidential records related to your request and have identified approximately 5,138 email messages, 25 electronic files and 200 pages of potentially responsive records that must be processed in order to respond to your request. The Foundation states in the lawsuit that in the last 14 months, the Archives responded five times but failed to provide any responsive records. The Archives has not returned media requests for comment. Arlene Richards, NTD News.
0: And now we're going to hear from the legal organization filing the lawsuit to have the National Archives release Biden's emails. Kimberly Herman, General Counsel of the Southeastern Legal Foundation, joins us live. Good morning, Kimberly. What is your group looking for in these emails?
6: Honestly, the truth just needs to come out to the American public about what is in these emails. We've seen a few of them. They've been released by John Solomon, the New York Post, and others. And we know that Joe Biden was forwarding government information to his son and other people. The question is why? How many times did he do this? and what was the actual substance of the other thousands and thousands of emails that the American public hasn't seen. At the end of the day, we just have a right to see these, and that's what we're trying to enforce here.
0: And why would a vice president forward this type of information to a family member?
6: That's an excellent question, Um, and one that we have no doubt the House committees that are looking into this will ask them. Our job here really as a public interest law firm is to file the lawsuit get the records in response to the FOIA. This is something that we've done for years. We've been working to expose Hunter Biden, Biden and Burisma um, relationships for years now, uncovering records that nobody else could get. That's all we're trying to do. And then we'll let those that are in power and those that are in the positions to do something about it, take them and run with them.
0: Why do you think the National Archives is taking so long to release these emails if they ever do?
6: That's an excellent question. Um, We've been seeking these records now for 14 months. In addition to the FOIA request we sent the year before, we understand that FOIA requests can take a while, but we have not moved up in the queue. That's why we filed this lawsuit. It's one thing that when we call them and get a status update for them to be giving us information, like we're working on it, we've uncovered these, we can do a rolling production. We've gotten absolutely nothing. And quite frankly, that's unacceptable.
0: How long is the time frame for FOIA requests in a similar sense?
6: For vice presidential records, um, they get about 60 days to file a substantive response. And then we typically will work with the agencies to get the records, um, to not be unreasonable. We know that it takes a while to review them. But again, because we have not moved up in the queue and we're getting no real response from them, we have no other option than to go to a federal court and ask them to order NARA to follow federal law.
0: WHAT BARRIERS DO YOU ANTICIPATE IN YOUR LAWSUIT?
6: Um, WE HAVE NO DOUBT THAT NARA IS PROBABLY NOT GOING TO WANT TO RELEASE THESE DOCUMENTS. THEY'RE GOING TO SAY THEY HAVE 5,000 AND THEY HAVE TO REVIEW THEM. BUT THEY'VE HAD OVER 14 MONTHS TO REVIEW THESE RECORDS. Um, WE OBVIOUSLY HAVE CONCERNS BASED ON WHAT NARA'S INVOLVEMENT WITH um, PRESIDENT TRUMP and everything that we've seen down in Mar-a-Lago. And so we're just hopeful that once this now is at the the DOJ, um, that we can get some attorneys that actually want to enforce the law and follow the law and get these records out. Because it doesn't matter whose emails they are. They are subject to FOIA, and they need to be exposed.
0: So what are the next steps in your lawsuit here, Kimberly?
6: Now we just wait for Nara to file a complaint, uh, an answer uh, in response to our complaint, and we will absolutely be using every single option that we have to litigate this in court, and we will keep the American public updated as soon as we have one.
0: Kimberly Herman at the Southeastern Legal Foundation, I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Former President Trump's mugshot continues to get attention. His campaign is attributing a surge in donations and merchandise sales to it. The Trump campaign says it's raised over $9 million since the mugshot was taken. That puts the campaign over $20 million for this month. Over 36,000 mugshot t-shirts have sold, netting over $1.7 million. Around 24,000 mugshot coffee mugs brought in over $850,000 and close to 9,000 posters sold for $350,000. The Trump campaign says the funds will not be used to cover legal expenses and are earmarked for political and campaign activities. The House Judiciary Committee is demanding answers from the Biden administration. It's asking why a prosecutor on special counsel Jack Smith's team met with White House staff before former President Trump's indictment in the classified records case. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the committee's demands. House Republicans
7: are pressing the Justice Department and the White House to provide records of communications between Special Counsel Jack Smith's office and President Biden's executive office. House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan raised questions about possible prosecutorial misconduct in a pair of letters to Attorney General Merrick Garland and White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients on Tuesday. The letter cited media reports in White House visitor logs of a meeting between Jay Bratt, a prosecutor on Mr. Smith's team, and the deputy chief of staff for President Biden's White House Counsel's Office, Caroline Saba, on March 31st. And a meeting between Bratt and an advisor to the White House Chief of Staff's Office, Catherine Riley, in September 2021, several weeks before Trump's indictment in the classified documents case. The committee chairman questioned the Justice Department's commitment to impartial justice and its handling of a special counsel investigation against President Biden's chief rival in the upcoming presidential race. Jordan requested all documents and communications relating to any appointment, meeting, or other visit by Mr. Bratt to the White House or the Executive Office of the President, as well as those between the Executive Office of the President and the Justice Department regarding the investigation and prosecutions of Special Counsel Jack Smith. The Republican lawmaker added that the Judiciary Committee had previously raised concerns about Mr. Bratt's involvement in the matter and that the new information raises serious concerns regarding a potentially coordinated effort between the Justice Department and the White House to investigate and prosecute President Biden's political opponents. The Judiciary Committee threatened to subpoena if the records are not provided. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News.
0: Heading into the break, it's been two years since 13 troops were killed during the withdrawal from Afghanistan, their families raising questions and concerns. Five pro-like activists found guilty on charges of stopping women from entering a Washington abortion clinic. Stay tuned for that story. Welcome back. The search for missing people in Maui following the devastating wildfires earlier this month is drawing to a close. Three weeks after the disaster, an unknown number of people are still missing. Officials say some search activity continues in the ocean off the coast of Lahaina, but no human remains have yet been found. So far, authorities have identified and notified loved ones of 45 of the over 110 killed. They have collected DNA from over 100 people to identify the dead and continue to see more samples. Meanwhile, Maui officials hired a new interim administrator of the Maui Emergency Management Agency. Daryl Oliveira, the former head of the Hawaii County Civil Defense Agency, replaces predecessor Herman Andaya. Andaya recently stepped down from his post, citing health reasons. Olivera said at a press conference that the agency will now be moving into the next phase, which will focus on hazardous waste removal conducted by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. An update on the Jacksonville shooting that left three people dead over the weekend. Audio of a 911 call from the shooter's father was released yesterday. He says on the call that his son stopped taking psychiatric medication and pretty much lived in his room after losing his job and dropping out of college. Records show the suspect had encounters with police as a teenager, one involved in involuntary psychiatric evaluation due to a suicide threat. Taking on Big Pharma. That's what President Biden is touting as he announces the first drugs to be targeted for price cuts. But drug companies are fighting back in court. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House.
8: And President Biden announced the first 10 drugs for which Medicare will be able to negotiate prices with drug companies. Biden says it will help Americans save money on prescription drugs.
9: Today is the start of a new deal for patients where Big Pharma doesn't just have, get a blank check at your expense.
8: Biden's inflation reduction last year gave Medicare the unprecedented authority to directly hash out drug prices with drug manufacturers. And President Biden, who's seeking re-election, is touting that step as one of the ways that he's improving the economy.
3: They started referring
9: to my economic policy as Bidenomics. Well, guess what? It's working.
8: Yeah. The drugs selected for price-lowering talks include big-selling blood thinners, Eliquis and Xarelto, as well as diabetes drug, Jardians. But consumers won't see any immediate savings as any negotiated price won't go into effect until 2026. And thus, as the move is also getting strong pushback from major drug makers like Johnson & Johnson and Merck. They filed at least eight lawsuits arguing that the government's price-controlling policy is unconstitutional. And they warned that shrinking profits can make drugs companies even less willing to take the risks to develop new drugs. But the Biden administration said today that it's not concerned about these lawsuits. We are
5: very confident in the law and we should recognize there is no part of the constitution that prohibits Medicare drug negotiations.
8: The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has estimated that price negotiations will lower the number of new drugs coming to the market by one percent over the next 30 years. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News.
0: All right, and it's been two years since 13 American troops were killed during the Afghanistan withdrawal, and their families are still looking for answers. And today's Jason Perry covers a panel discussion with those Gold Star families.
9: It's been over 22 years since the tragic events of September 11th shook our nation to its core. In response, the United States sent troops to Afghanistan to defeat Al Qaeda and bring justice to those responsible for the attacks. For over two decades, brave men and women served on foreign land, and thousands of them making the ultimate sacrifice. Last year, President Biden withdrew U.S. forces from Afghanistan, but many criticized the operation as hasty and ill-planned. During the withdrawal, 13 American service members were killed during a devastating terrorist attack at Kabul's Abbey Gate. 45 other troops were also injured in the attack, and 170 civilians were killed. I'd trade
10: every medal, (sighs) every award to have
5: my son back.
9: On Tuesday, two years after the chaotic withdrawal, the House Foreign Affairs Committee hosted the family members of those 13 fallen troops. The saddest
1: part is it all could have been prevented.
9: Representative Michael McCall gave his
1: condolences
9: to the families and said this.
1: Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, who is here today, and Tyler, we want to thank you for being here, testified that Marine snipers at Abbey Gate spotted the suicide bomber before the explosion. Yet they were told by their superiors that they could not engage the threat, were not given permission to engage.
9: The mother-in-law of Marine Sergeant Nicole G. also said the attack could
5: have been prevented. Our armed services request for air support. Multiple, multiple military personnel saying this is not a good idea. Our snipers asking for permission to engage. Every one of them ignored. These are red flags. Why were they ignored? Midway
1: through the panel,
9: a message was brought in from the Pentagon.
1: I want to read a statement that I just received from General Milley.
9: The statement said Millie believes the military did the best they could, briefing the families. And if there were issues with that, we need to take whatever corrective action is necessary. Steve Nikawi, father of Marine Corps Lance Corporal Kareem Nikawi, said some of the generals defended their roles in the withdrawals by saying they could only give recommendations to the president, and it is up to the president to take those recommendations. I also thought it was a responsibility of generals to threaten to resign as a last measure of persuasion. They didn't do that. Representative McCall said he will continue the investigation into the Afghanistan withdrawal. And on Thursday, the committee will be interviewing Ambassador Dan Smith, who led the State Department's Afghanistan after-action review. Jason Perry, NTD News.
0: Coming up, more aid for Ukraine. The U.S. announces a $250 million package, and Hungary's Prime Minister tells Tucker Carlson how he thinks the conflict will play out. A smuggler with ties to a terrorist group is helping illegal immigrants cross the U.S. border. We have the latest when we come back. It's good to have you back with us. Russia will not be investigating the crash of the Brazilian-made Embraer jet that killed mercenary boss Yevgeny Prigozhin. This, according to Brazil's Aircraft Investigation Authority, which was informed of the decision by Russian officials, Officials said that no probe will commence under international rules known as Annex 13 for the time being. Brazil's Center for Research and Prevention of Aeronautical Accidents said it would join a future Russian-led investigation if it were invited. In the interests of improving aviation safety and if the probe was held under international rules, Russia, however, is not obliged to comply with Brazil's request. The Brazilian-made Embraer Legacy 600 crashed north of Moscow last week. Purgosian was among the 10 people who were killed in the crash, along with two top Wagner Group lieutenants and four bodyguards. Ukraine is getting another $250 million aid package from the U.S. The announcement yesterday from the Biden administration comes as the war-torn country mounts a counteroffensive against Russia. Meanwhile, Tucker Carlson sat down with Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban to ask how the conflict might end. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more.
7: The State Department says the $250 million aid package will include munitions for high-mobility artillery rocket systems, AIM-9M missiles for air defense, artillery ammunition, over 3 million rounds of small arms ammunition, and ambulances. The package will come from existing stockpiles. The Pentagon reported earlier this year it overestimated by billions of dollars how much shipment of materials to Ukraine would cost. Defense officials say the estimate was based on prices of new equipment rather than the depreciated price. That gives the U.S. more leeway to supply Ukraine with more weapons and equipment. The Department of Defense says over $113 billion in military and humanitarian aid has been sent to Ukraine since the war started, but not all of the funds have been used. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban told Tucker Carlson in an interview on X Tuesday Ukraine has no chance of winning the war. It's not just a misunderstanding. It's a lie. It's impossible. Orban called the support for Ukraine a badly engineered strategy. He says it comes down to numbers and that the figures and data don't add up. The poor Ukrainians die every day. Yes. Hundreds and thousands, you know, so I'm, my heart is with them. So it's a it's, 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 uh, it's tragedy. It's tragedy for Ukraine. But they will run out earlier From the soldiers number of soldiers than the russians what finally will count is boots on the ground and the russians are far stronger the u.s and its allies are planning long-term military assistance to ukraine building off commitments made on the sidelines of a g7 meeting in july close to 20 non-g7 countries are backing the effort jeremy sandberg ntd news
0: and now for some short headlines from around the world Military officers in the central African state of Gabon claimed to have seized power this morning. The officers also said they annulled the recent elections in which President Ali Bongo was declared the winner and have placed him under house arrest. Bongo's family has ruled the country for more than half a century. The Danish government has proposed a bill that would make it illegal to burn copies of the Quran in public places. Doing so would be punishable by fines or up to two years in prison. It's part of the Nordic country's effort to de-escalate tensions with Muslim min- countries. Denmark and Sweden have seen a recent string of protests where copies of the Quran have been burned. In a world's first, doctors pulled a live three-inch-long worm from a woman's brain in Australia. A neurosurgeon discovered the roundworm during brain surgery. The parasite is usually found in pythons. Researchers say the woman probably caught it when foraging an area inhabited by carpet pythons for a native leafy vegetable. And after the break, we ask whether those in the U.S. illegally or under parole should be able to become police officers. Some blue states are pursuing this. We hear from a former immigration judge. Books some deem inappropriate in the spotlight. A group of publishers and booksellers balk at a new Texas law. We have analysis for you in just a minute. Welcome back. A smuggler with ties to a terrorist group is facilitating illegal border crossings, posing a potential security threat. The White House says he's part of a smuggling network that helps Uzbek migrants enter the U.S. from Mexico. The White House spokesperson said authorities have no indication that migrants aided by the smuggling network have terrorist connections. She doesn't confirm links to ISIS specifically or where the smuggler is based. The FBI is trying to locate about 15 of roughly 120 Uzbek migrants who entered the country through the network. A spokesperson said no specific ISIS plot has been uncovered. In 2022, U.S. customs officials encountered over 3,000 Uzbeks at the border. Should non-citizens have the right to arrest U.S. citizens? The question comes as some states, like California and Illinois, try recruiting illegal immigrants to fill their police forces. I spoke to a former immigration judge about the risks of doing so and how the Defund the Police movement has played into this. Take a look. Joining me now is Matt O'Brien, Director of Investigations at the Immigration Reform Law Institute. It is great to have you with us, Matt. Can you start by telling us which types of illegal immigrants are being considered here as potential police officers?
4: Sure. So the way these statutes are set up, they say that anyone who has a work authorization in the United States and otherwise meets the hiring requirements could be hired and put to work as a police officer. Uh, the problem with that is that many of the people that have work authorization are folks that were either paroled into the United States. Parole is a legal fiction, which means that people are at the border seeking admission, but they're allowed in for the convenience of the U.S. government. Uh, Deferred action, which is what the so-called DACA kids have, is an acknowledgement by the government that you are not here lawfully, but the government is going to refrain from exercising its prosecutorial authority to deport you from the United States. Uh, There are also people here on temporary visa statuses like H-1B, that might have work authorization. However, the terms of their admission are limited to them doing a particular kind of job for a particular employer. So this is a disaster waiting to happen. Most police departments don't understand these different categories. And there are a whole lot of unresolved issues that we're gonna wind up crashing into with this very poorly conceived plan.
0: I want to talk about these parolees that you mentioned. California law allows those that were released under Mayorkas' parole program, the so-called one, that they're not always screened in their home countries and may be indebted to smuggling cartels. So what's your reaction to this?
4: Well, this is a huge problem. If you have people that are indebted to smuggling cartels or that were involved in some kind of crime in their own country, they're subject to influence. And what would the cartels like more than having a whole bunch of police officers on American departments that they can coerce into looking the other way when a crime happens. Um, and that doesn't even begin to address the issues that you have uh, with people, you know, perhaps not wanting to prosecute fellow countrymen who are recently arrived. Uh, it, you know, there's all kinds of possibility for corruption and everything else. And then you have the matter that many of these people, at this point in their uh, stay here in the United States, I guess would be the best way to phrase it aren't familiar with language and a lot of the cultural nuances and there was that terrible situation in Minneapolis where a Somali immigrant who was recruited to be a police officer shot an Australian woman who had made a call about a prowler and he had no basis for so doing. So these are the kind of situations that may become much more frequent if states and cities go forward with this very ill thought out crazy plan.
0: Thank you for giving us some context surrounding this. Now, blue state politicians cite the need for police and a more diverse force as part of the reason for this, but what would happen if these illegal immigrants were not allowed to become police officers there?
4: Well, I, I don't think much of anything is going to happen. The, the terrible problem they're having recruiting police officers at the present time has to do with the defund the police movement and the fact that police officers aren't being allowed to do their jobs in terms of addressing crime. I think if those things change, then you're going to get a lot of Americans that do want to become police officers, and you're going to get a lot fewer people leaving police forces. So I think it's more important to correct the problems that have discouraged people from becoming police officers and that have caused people to retire than it is to immediately go for the low-hanging fruit and say, we're going to take a whole bunch of people with a dubious immigration status who may not even have the lawful right to be here, in many cases won't have the lawful right to carry a firearm, and we're going to put them in a position of authority over U.S. citizens, arresting
0: them and possibly giving testimony against them in a court of law. Well, I do really appreciate your analysis. Matt O'Brien at the Immigration Reform Law Institute, thank you. Thank you very much. Five pro-life activists were found guilty yesterday on charges of stopping women from entering a Washington abortion clinic. They face up to 10 years in prison for conspiring to prevent someone else from exercising their rights. The charges stem from an October 2020 incident where the pro-life activists entered the Washington Sergey clinic. The prosecution said they conspired to block the clinic's entrances. Their lawyers said they didn't. The protesters were also found guilty of violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. The act makes it a crime to use violence, physical obstruction, or intimidation to block access to reproductive services. Court documents show that the judge forbade the defense from using several strategies. One such strategy, called the necessity defense, is where someone says they committed a crime to prevent a greater crime from happening. And a group of national publishers and booksellers is suing Texas over a law that will force public school library vendors to review and rate books for sexual content. And today's Daniel Monahan spoke with Cindy Castilla, president of the nonprofit organization Texas Eagle Forum, for her take.
2: The bill, also known as the Reader Act, was passed and signed into law by Governor Greg Abbott in June. It aims to protect children from exposure to inappropriate or explicit sexual content in public school libraries. It will require school library vendors to label books as sexually explicit, sexually relevant, or no rating. The bill is a result of the years-long efforts by parents across the state, angry with school districts over library materials they see as inappropriate for their children. Cindy Castilla says virtual learning during COVID allowed parents more intimate knowledge of what was going on in their child's classroom.
3: Parents started to uh, discover what was in their libraries at their school and sometimes in in classroom libraries. And it, it wasn't anything that made most parents happy.
2: One such book is Let's Talk About It, described on the cover as the teen's guide to sex, relationships, and being a human. Other books include Gender Queer, which has graphic sexual drawings, and which parents say teaches kids how to set up a Tinder account. Or This Book is Gay, which also teaches kids about other online dating apps, which critics say exposes them to potential abuse. Other titles parents complained about included Lawn Boy, All Boys Aren't Blue, and What Girls Are Made Of, which has explicit and graphic descriptions of sex.
3: People have had their kids exposed to things. People have stories from their their history of of overexposure. But it's mostly just about if we want education to do what it's supposed to do, why are we spending time uh, getting our kids to read books that actually sexualize them? That is not what education is about.
2: Castilla says the Texas public school system has goals which are supposed to define its education system.
3: The main things that they say they want to accomplish, their goals for students, are to demonstrate exemplary performance in reading and writing of the English language, understanding of mathematics, understanding of science, and understanding social studies, which would include history.
2: She says those goals don't include what she calls sexualizing kids. Castilla doesn't see any issue with forcing vendors to review and rate the books they sell.
3: It makes them know their product. Uh, when you go to a restaurant, they have to know what they're serving you. <laughs> they, you know, they know it comes from a, from a good source and that it's reliable. Uh, the vendors have to know what's in these books because they are providing them to other people's children. Um, they probably look and see what's in their own children's books.
2: One Texas parent who wished to remain anonymous points the finger at the American Library Association. She says the majority of the books parents found inappropriate were on their recommended reading lists. The group of publishers and booksellers have filed a 28-page complaint that describes the ratings law as a book ban. They argue that it violates the First and Fourteenth Amendments, but Castilla says opposing explicit content has nothing to do with violating the right to free speech.
3: There's federal law and there's court cases that support that obscenity, and pornography are not free speech.
2: Adding that free speech does not allow you to expose someone else's children, for example, to explicit sex or graphic rape from the rapist's perspective. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
0: Still to come, Americans are feeling less confident to spend as summer draws to a close. What's behind it? NTD business host Don Ma brings us more after the break. Great to have you back with us. A big move by social media platform X ahead of the 2024 elections. X, formerly known as Twitter, is going to allow political advertising in the U.S. The decision announced yesterday reverses Twitter's ban on political advertising dating back to October 2019. The company promises to enhance policies aimed at combating the spread of false information and says it will have a robust screening process for ads. It will also ban the promotion of false or misleading information intended to undermine public confidence in an election. U.S. consumer confidence fell sharply to 106 in August. That was below a reading of 116 expected in a survey. We're joined by NTD business host Don Ma for a discussion on this. Don, it's great to have you with us today.
10: Yeah, good morning, Kevin.
0: Americans are feeling worse about the economy. U.S. consumer confidence fell more than expected in August. So what are some reasons that Americans are feeling this way, Don?
10: Okay, so the research organization that provides business insights called the Conference Board said it's consumer confidence index fell in August. And and the reason for that is because consumers were once again concerned with rising prices in general. Uh, that's like for groceries and for gasoline in particular. And Kevin, I say once again, because before this, we saw two straight monthly increases, actually, in consumer confidence. The pullback... Uh, this month in consumer confidence was seen across all age groups but most notably among consumers with household incomes of one hundred thousand dollars or more but those earning less than fifty thousand dollars are also seeing a drop in confidence kevin hopefully that can bounce
0: back so why is consumer confidence something that is so closely watched
10: so consumer confidence is important because it directly impacts economic activity When consumers feel confident uh, about the economy and their personal financial situation, they're more likely to spend money on goods and services. Uh, Consumer spending is a major component of the U.S. gross domestic product, uh, around 70%, so that's very significant, and this increased spending stimulates demand and then drives business growth and leads to job creation. It can be seen actually as a very important indicator of economic health.
0: Yes, and the US economy is definitely very consumer driven. So do you have
10: anything else for us today, Don? Yeah, sure. Um, New figures on the US job market. So job openings actually dropped for the third consecutive month. Uh, According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it's below 9 million for the first time since early 2021. And the Federal Reserve has actually been hoping for more slack in the labor market. So this could be a welcome situation. The imbalance between worker demand and supply could cause wages to rise. That could ultimately cause an increase in inflation. So an update on Hurricane Idalia. It's creating headaches for air travelers. Two of Florida's largest airports, Tampa International Airport and St. Pete Clearwater International Airport, were closed yesterday. Hundreds of flights have been canceled. Southwest Airlines was the most affected, with over 140 cancellations. Delays have stretched into Thursday. And just, just one last update. Google is placing a price tag on its AI features. Uh, the company says it will charge large businesses $30 a month per user. That's for duet AI technology added to Gmail and other productivity apps. It can create text and images for documents and take notes on meetings. Uh, The $30 price tag Microsoft charges for its AI tools uh, will be in place uh, sometime in the future. And that's all from me, Kevin.
0: Well, I I definitely feel for those delayed travelers. And, And it's a good thing that the airlines are taking all the necessary precautions here. And so, Don, thank you, host of NTD Business. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. Just ahead, Taylor County, Florida is pulling out all the stops to prepare for Idalia. Local inmates are helping bolster their defenses. A baby stolen at birth in Chile and sold into adoption in America finds his birth mother. Stay tuned to find out more. Welcome back. Hurricane Dalia has been downgraded to Category 3 from Category 4. Governor DeSantis said she's expected to make landfall in Florida's Big Bend in about 10 minutes. Let's take a look at one Florida County that came up with a unique way to get prepared.
2: Floridians know plenty about surviving hurricanes and tropical storms. Communities there excel at coming together to prepare for such weather events. One small community in Taylor County, Florida, has a creative way to speed up preparation efforts. They are using inmates from the local county jail to help fill and distribute sandbags to area residents. The inmates are working under police supervision. The black and white striped uniform has become a common sight at sandbag distribution locations throughout Florida when flooding threatens the state.
9: We believe that uh, this is a safe place and Hurricanes come, still going to be a safe place, even anywhere in Florida.
0: And next we turn to a happy ending that took decades to arrive. A stolen baby and his mother are finally reunited.
10: We're going to?
3: We're going to? Chile! We're going to go see who?
10: After 42 years, a Chilean mother and her son, who was stolen at birth and sold for adoption, are reunited.
9: It's been 42 years, almost 43 years, um, and I've never, never met her. Um, I didn't; she didn't know about me uh, because I was taken from her at birth, and she was told that I was dead, and that. Um, When she asked for my body, they told her that they had disposed of it. And so, we've never held each other, we've never hugged. And today, I'm going to get to do that for the first time.
10: They found each other through Nos Buscamos, translated as, we find each other. The NGO's director says there are hundreds or thousands of similar cases, children trafficked under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet and after.
8: These children were declared dead and sold to foreigners for $10,000 or $15,000.
10: Reunions of this sort don't always happen, but the payoff is palpable for Jimmy and his birth mother, an emotional event decades in the making.
0: That is a happy ending. And that's all for today's program. And we'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Kevin Hogan.